Hello and welcome everyone to India Colonize, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's modern and contemporary history. I'm your host Umar Haq and today on our next episode of Guftgu, we have with us the author of Weepy Menon, the unsung architect of India, Ms. Narayani Basu. With his initial plans for an independent India in tatters, the desperate viceroy Lord Mountbatten turned to his senior most Indian civil servant, V.P. Manit, giving him a single night to devise an alternative, coherent and workable plan for independence. Menon met his strangest deadline, presenting the Menon plan, which would change the map of the world forever. Menon was unarguably the architect of modern Indian state, yet startlingly little is known about this bureaucrat, patriot, and visionary. In this definitive biography, Menon's great-granddaughter, Narayani Basu, rectifies this traversity. She takes us through the highs and lows of his career, from his determination to give women the right to vote, to his strategy, at once ruthless and subtle, to get principal states to accede to India, to his decision to join forces with the Swatantra Party, to his final relegation to relative obscurity. Equally, the book candidly explores the man behind the public figure, his unconventional personal life, his private conflicts, which made him channel his energy into public service. Drawing from the documents rescattered, unread and unsearched until now, with unprecedented access to Menon's paper and a taped-off record and explosively frank interviews, this remarkable biography of V.P. Menon not only covers the life and times of a man unjustly consigned to the footnotes of history, but also changes our perception of how India, as we know it, came into being. Narayani Basu is a historian and a foreign political analyst. A graduate in history and Chinese foreign policy from the University of Delhi, she published her first book, The United States and China, Competing Discourse of Regionalism in East Asia in 2015, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing. The book is available in major libraries across the world, including the University of New South Wales, Leiden University, Cambridge and the National Library of Scotland, the University of Toronto and McGill University. She continues to write extensively on foreign policy for several acclaimed international journals, while remaining actively involved in her parent discipline, modern Indian history. Her current area of interest focuses on highlighting the lesser-known but key players behind the story of Indian independence. The story of Weepy Menon is a product of that interest and her second book. So, hello and welcome to India Colonized, Ms. Narayani, and uh, thank you so much for joining us and to discuss your absolutely wonderful biography on uh, Weepy Menon. So before we start uh, discussing your book and your work, just a couple of biographical questions as to uh, about yourself, the kind of intellectual journey you've had, and uh, what are the kind of people in the books 
that have influenced you um, during your process of writing this book, even to what you're doing to this day? Uh, the process of writing this book has been uh, very unconventional. Um, I did my undergraduate in history uh, from St. Stephen's and uh, thereafter I branched out into international relations. I specialized in uh, China studies um, and I went, I did my master's in China studies. I did an MPhil in China studies. Um, and then I worked for a while uh, at a think tank called Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies. Uh, so I was in my professional life, I was very much uh, a China person. Um, research wise and degree wise and interest wise, I was always a history person. Um, and it was actually during the course of my undergrad degree that I stumbled upon VP Menon. Um, my family's uh, never talked about VP in a familial sort of uh, light. So I never really grew up with the knowledge that uh, VP was my great grandfather. Um, when I was studying um, for my undergrad degree in Indian history, uh, I began reading a lot of nonfiction apart from the prescribed course books on um, modern Indian history and the whole process of transfer of power, uh, the run up to the transfer of power, um, and particularly through the mid 1940s through to the early 1950s, you see VP Menon's name a lot, particularly in the summer of 1947. Um, and it was never really more than just a name with a sort of brief one line description and it sort of flitted in and out of the pages. But it was very clear that this was a man who played a very crucial role in the transfer of power and in the integration of the state thereafter. Um, and my family and I have this sort of habit of um, talking about the books that uh, each of us might be reading at a particular time. Um, and I was discussing this with my mom. I was discussing a particular book with my mom and I happened to mention VP's name. And uh, that was when she told me, and I was in my late teens, early twenties at the time. Um, and that was when she told me that, you know, he's your great grandfather. And I was completely taken aback because I, had, I didn't know even how to process this. I wanted to find out more about him. Um, I did the obvious thing and I Googled and there was nothing. There were uh, one random blog or so and literally nothing else. I mean, we have, uh, obviously we have the copies of his uh, very seminal books that he wrote on the transfer power and the integration of the states. Um, but that told me nothing about him. You know, they are very, if you've read them, they are uh, very boring <laughs> books, right? They're very dry, they're very technical. Technical, uh, they stick to the facts as they happened. Um, and that's about it. They told me nothing about the kind of man he was, uh, the kind of power that he wielded, how he got to that position of power. Um, and that became something that interested me. I, I had to put it on the back burner for a while because uh, conventional careers uh, don't really mean that you can follow uh, you know, a writing career full time. It was only about maybe a couple of years into me working at, at the Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies that um, I decided, you know what, I want to focus on this book for full time. I want to be able to tell his story. By this point, I had started talking to people, my family about him, to the larger family about him. 
um, and I felt, you know, there could be something here. Um, I still didn't know how to tell it because uh, keep in mind, I had never written a biography before. I had never written, um, you know, something that could be as vast as this possibly could be. Um, so I had no idea. So in that sense, my career trajectory and, you know, my approach to this possibly has been pretty unconventional. Um, I did eventually start working on this book full time. Um, and it's, it took me about six to seven years to finally produce this book. Um, and during that course of six to seven years is when I actually discovered the entire span of his career, right? Here was a man who had joined government service in 1914, all the way up to 1951. Uh, besides contributing to what became very briefly a major contender for political power in India, the Swatantra Party. Um, and this was a man about whom we really didn't know too much at all. I mean, whenever I said I was working on a biography of VP Menon, people automatically thought I meant Krishna Menon. So there would automatically be this question of you, you know, our defense minister, and I would have to correct them, and then they'd have no idea of whom I was talking about. Um, and that gap in knowledge is also something that I really wanted to address, uh, both as a historian and as a great granddaughter, I guess. But I was also very clear that any biography I ultimately did write would not be a hagiography or a eulogy to his memory. I wanted this to be a biography because we don't have anything or we didn't have anything about him uh, in the public domain at that point. Um, and that was the final aim with which I actually sat down to write and research this book. Um, and the more I went into it, the more amazed I became, like I said, about this complete span of this man's career, which basically meant that he had seen India through a First World War, through the Second World War, through the entire span of its constitutional movement, uh, right until freedom and integration. So that's, that's huge. And I think that's uh, incredibly unprecedented. Well, absolutely. It definitely looks like this uh, book writing. I mean, this project has been a labor of love for you. Um, to come back to, to the question once again, so I wanted to know um, the kind of people and uh, the work of people who have been influencers in your life. Um, not probably even, you know, while you started writing the project, but before that, while you were student. I mean, given that how a lot of people see history to be a very boring subject, what caused you or what yeah. sparked your interest in the subject? I have always loved history, which is why I took up history in the first place. Um, I think one of the greatest influencers, uh, I mean, she'd probably be slightly alarmed at me calling her an influencer, but uh, my history school, my school teacher in history was incredibly influential at that point because she taught it like a story. Uh, there was no emphasis on, you know, on this date X happened and on that date Y happened. Uh, it was never about dates. It was never about places. It was about people. Um, and I, I think that's what sparked my interest in looking at our past as a story rather than as a collection of just random dates and places and events to be remembered. Um, and I think that is something that I took 
uh, forward, even when I was studying history, even when I sat down to uh, write it, that's something I took forward, that, that initial approach of looking at history as a story. Um, apart from that, um, I think my parents have played a huge role in uh, being incredibly understanding when their daughter said, you know, okay, I can't, I'm not doing a conventional nine to five desk job. I'm going to freelance because you can't support writing um, otherwise. Um, you're going, I'm going to freelance. Uh, I'm going to write freelance. I'm going to copy edit and edit freelance uh, while I write this book. Um, and I think honestly, um, I speak also from a great position of privilege because I live at home. I don't, uh, I don't live on my own as such. Um, so there is an immense amount of privilege there, honestly. Uh, I'm also privileged by the fact that I had parents who said, all right, fine, we support you when you do this. Um, there was never any questioning of that fact. They, they, they were incredibly influential there. Um, so I think those, these three people have been incredibly key in how I'm, in the approach that I've taken. Apart from that, it's also been the kind of books that I've read, the kind of um, approaches that the authors that I admire in particular uh, have taken. Uh, so for instance, one of my favorite authors while I was uh, reading in my early 20s and late 20s was uh, William Dalrymple. Um, and again, I, you know, I know that in terms of academic credentials, there may not be a doctorate involved, but the research is so meticulous and the storytelling is, um, it's so gripping that you don't tend to look at history as an academic subject. Again, it's history as storytelling. Um, and like I said, that's something that's always really appealed to me a lot uh, in the process of telling history. So I think the major takeaway is one is there is emphasis on storytelling and narrative and in teaching history, which I think is major missing. And it's definitely something that we as a project want to emphasize to the world is move away from the monotony of uh, telling dates and everything and emphasize <laughs> yeah. on telling stories and build a good narrative. Uh, yeah. And definitely William Dalimple, whose uh, who's inspiration has he not been in definite big uh, <laughs> None of his work as well. So you were also talking about the approaches and, uh, you know, people have usually taken. Uh, we've noted that biographies recently have become a part of, uh, especially with the Indian writers, writing biographies has increased in the past couple of years. Um, so would you say that uh, it, it was also, first of all, you had previously probably not written a book and this as your first project was a biography in the first place. Uh, and what were the kind of approaches or methodologies that you... Uh, had while filtering out uh, the kind of narratives you were getting, the literature that you were going through? Oh gosh, you know, that that was an entire process of trial and, trial and error because like I said, um, you can go into a project with certain uh, set goals in mind, right? So for instance, I had the set goal that this was not going to be um, a hagiography or a eulogy, but once you actually sit down with the material, once you actually start collecting it, there's, there are a lot of technicalities that a first-time biographer can get very easily daunted by. Uh, one is the amount of material that you possibly have on a subject, um, the range of it, the scope of it, 
uh, how to collect it, how to uh, curate it in terms of uh, whether you want to do it via index cards or a spreadsheet or you know whatever your chosen methods are those are that's just something that for, for me i found it by trial and error um i use an excel i use an excel spreadsheet so each spreadsheet has uh different uh sheets on archive sources primary sources secondary sources uh where uh different archives may be located and what collections they contain um, if the catalogs of those collections can be attained online, I generally look through them to see what files uh, are important and what I can then email the institution about or try and look for a grant about. In my case, uh, another difficulty was because I'm an independent historian, I don't have institutional affiliation. I didn't have it then, I don't have it now. Um, so it becomes that much more difficult to procure travel grants, research grants, um, because essentially you're just uh, to the to the foundation you're applying to you're just this random person asking for a grant right you're not you're not backed by in university uh, affiliation or institutional affiliation um so for me uh, the turning point actually came when the charles wallace trust decided to give me um, a grant one of its independent grant short term grants for independent researchers like me uh, which gave me a couple of months in London, which is where I discovered I needed to go in order to access uh, H.V. Hodson's papers, which, as you see, are uh, hugely referred to across my book. Um, and the, the collections of that are available online, which is how I knew this was uh, an incredibly important source for me. Um, so if you, when I looked through it, I discovered the extent of it, the collections that it contained, as well as the fact that he, he, he had left behind audio recordings of the people that he had interviewed who had been integral to the process of transfer of power. And one of those people was Ruthie Menon. So for me, that became, uh, you know, it was a landmark moment. Um, and had the Charles Wallace Trust not existed, I don't really know how I'd managed to, I'd have managed to go to London because if you are an independent scholar, especially in India, it's difficult, you don't have that kind of backing for projects that you might wish to undertake. Um, but anyway, that was given to me, which is how I landed up in London, which is how I landed up listening to um, Hodson's tapes uh, with VP Menon. Um, and I think that was a huge turning point. Uh, at this point, I should also point out when I was accessing Hodson's papers in 2016, I still didn't have a book deal. I still hadn't started writing this book. I was still in the process of collecting material. Um, and I was finding the process very daunting because I had no idea that so much material existed, actually speaking on VP. Um, because one of the things that I had found, and in Delhi, I should say, in Delhi, uh, the institutions that I looked at were the National Archives uh, on Janpat uh, and Nehru Memorial Museum and Library for its manuscripts division, which contains personal papers uh, of people key in the independence movement, as well as archives of newspapers, etc. Um, and in the National Archives is where I discovered the first sort of documentation of VP Menon's existence in government service in 1914. Um, 
and that was the first time that i realized that my gosh here's dude who's been uh, in government service since 1914 so that automatically broadened my scope of research um and that was even more daunting to somebody who was already daunted by the amount of material that was there from the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s which as you know um is huge um so that took me all the way back to 1914 then on the on the on the heels of that as i got the charles wallace uh grant then i went to london uh i was in soas um and i listened to these tapes and he i mean there were tapes upon tapes of his of hodgson's interviews with vp um and it was you know you have one of those wow moments in research uh where you finally find a gold mine and you it's it's incredible the amount of information that it yields and the amount of resources that it can lead you to uh vp menon's voice was my wow moment because you know i was sitting there both as an historian and as a great granddaughter listening to his voice for the first time um and he was speaking in a completely no holds barred way um and that and which is why i've allowed his voice to be one of the major major uh, ways to tell this book uh in fact listening to his voice was probably the first moment that i realized that okay this is going to be how i largely will tell this book by using his voice because if you don't use the voice of somebody who's been so key to the entire process of constitutional reform transfer of power and integration of states then you're doing uh, that person a disservice so i which is why uh, that became one of the tools that i used um, it was completely unintentional i had no idea what those tapes would yield uh, but when i heard the full extent of them that is when i knew so um as a first timer in writing biographies i think for me it was like i said trial and error um and it was letting the archival material sort of lead me to deciding who and what should tell the narrative um and how to position each character uh within that so i mean very unconventional again but that was my process but as unconventional as it sounds uh, what kind of limitations i mean you spoke and extend about how your access to archives basically dictated or shaped how your work went but uh, what were the kind of limitations you faced while having the access to the archives some missing gaps or something you you know you wish you would have found a little more maybe on his private lives or where a lot is not known or recorded about his private life definitely is one of the areas where um i did feel a very large gap um you know for instance his first marriage uh, i there is nothing that survives about his first wife there are no pictures there is no documentation uh nobody in the extended family um remembers more than her name uh which i find uh, incredible that over the generations you have Uh, an entire human being expunged from historical record right uh because you can be expunged from the record in so many ways there's there's an official way to do it and then there's an entirely personal way to do it um and in a 
very personal sense, she had been expunged from the record. If she had not given birth to two sons, one of whom was my grandfather, um, she may well have not have existed. Um, and I, as a as a historian, I find that incredible that that human nature can drive um, actions which remain incomprehensible to this day. Um, that is one area in which I definitely felt uh, an incredible shortcoming because I would have I would have very much liked to have known what happened in that first marriage that caused her to crumble, what happened that caused her to leave two young boys behind uh, and simply vanish. Uh, it, it strikes me as bizarre that um, a mother or a woman or a person would do that. Uh, so yes, that, that part, I definitely do wish I'd found more material on. So apart from his, uh, you know, apart from your limitations in finding sources, were, were there things where you could not include in the book because of publication restriction, like something that you found that you wish that the project could extend a little longer, but you had to cut short because maybe the publication uh, uh, publishers had some sort of limitation or anything of that sort. Maybe you found something later on after you had completed the project. No, I think my publishers were incredibly patient with me. Um, I signed um, the deal in 2017 and the book was due out in 2018. Um, and as you know, it came out only in 2020. So uh, they, they were kind enough to give me a two year grace period with uh, writing as far as that is concerned. So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I think my greatest limitation uh, it was never in terms of permissions. I think uh, everyone that I spoke to in the extended uh, Vapala clan as well, uh, they were incredibly forthcoming, ready to help with uh, photographs, with uh, their memories of him, with anything that they could find or that had been preserved over the years. Um, and in itself, you know, um, it's rare because you don't necessarily have that kind of openness. You don't encounter it all the time. And especially given the fact that this was a man whose first marriage did not uh, work out at all, um, I found it even more, um, not just ironical, but also very welcome that here were people still willing to talk about things and still willing to offer me whatever memories they had left of him. Um, so there, were no, there was no question of limitations as far as the family was concerned. Everyone was very open. Um, as far as material that possibly could not be published in the public domain, I didn't come across anything um, so incendiary that I could not publish it. Um, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that there's going to be a reference here to uh, the omission of Sadar Patel from the cabinet list. Uh, but, uh, you know, I went ahead and published that anyway, because uh, oral history is a definite source of history. Uh, that's, that's my view uh, of the matter. I mean, you don't uh, discount somebody's lived experiences simply for political or personal reasons. Uh, what somebody lived through, what somebody witnessed, um, those are immensely important things to include in the narrative of someone's life, uh, especially given the fact that this is a man who was at the very height of politics at that point. Uh, we also need to remember that not everything in politics and diplomacy is documented. 
there are things that are informal, there are things that are verbal back channel communications, not everything is documented. So when you have someone who has retired from public life and is therefore speaking uh, of his experiences and memories of time, uh, I thought it was important to include that as well. Um, so I put, I put it on the table and my publishers were uh, immensely open about it. Um, so in that sense, uh, there was no limitation. Again, I think the only limitation that I did face was because I am an independent scholar, like I said, and therefore access to journals, access to grants, access to the kind of travel that certain subjects entail, uh, that is possibly the greatest limitation that you can face as an independent scholar. Well, um... That definitely has been a struggle, and it's come come. Uh, the product has come out uh, really beautifully, and I really appreciate that. Uh, now to actually discuss the life of uh, VP Menon, I think we can first start by clarifying VP versus VK Menon, and uh, to clarify that VP was not VK Menon, and uh, but for the sake of our audience, VP and VK Menon were never related, were they? No, not at all. They were two very different men, two very different menons. They okay. were not related in any way. Okay. So to discuss about Menon's life, tell us a bit about his childhood struggles, his uh, you know, schooling, his journey to Kolar, and the kind of life lessons that he imbibed in, in, in his very young years. So when I was looking through uh, the research of this, one of the things that has survived in, um, and it's become almost legendary, was the fact that VP burnt down his school when he was a kid. Um, now that's, that's something that you raise your eyebrows at because you don't, you don't believe that, that that's happened, right? Because, I mean, we've all wanted to do it. We've never really, I mean, no one's done it because it just isn't done. Um, when I actually when I actually conducted interviews about this uh, with his extended family, with the descendants of his extended family, I discovered that it was actually true. Um, and that to my mind was, you know, it immediately gave me the image of this boy who was a complete renegade right from the start. Um, and, you know, the more I researched into it, the more that became apparent, you know, he was brought up in an immensely... Um, pampered, privileged household. Um, and until the point that he set his school on fire, he had never really done any manual hard work, any kind of hard labor that he would be subjected to pretty shortly in his teen years. Um, so he sets his school on fire when he's about 13, runs away immediately because the shame of what he's done completely overwhelms him. Um, and he boards the train uh, at the railway station, which takes him to Kolar. Uh, now, Kolar were booming. It was a booming gold mine at that point. Um, and employment was pretty easy to find. It's just that it was not the kind of employment that VP was either used to or was expecting. It was hard, hard work. He started off as a coolie uh, going down into the gold mines to bring up the ore that would be sifted for the gold. Um, it was only a few months later that he uh, came across an advertisement for uh, employment as an overseer. Um, and he decided to apply for it. There were two posts, one for an overseer, one for a clerk. And he decided to go in for 
uh, an overseer's post. Um, and the Englishman who was interviewing him said, you know, are you sure you can handle this? And um, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I can. Um, and he couldn't, of course, because he had never supervised uh, anything before. Uh, like I said, he'd never done any kind of uh, hard labor. Um, and overseeing grown men was very different from being a coolie. You had to supervise them and ensure that they met their quota of bringing up the, the ore that would be sifted for the gold. Uh, many times these were men who slacked off or who slid down into the tunnel, into the mines and into, the nar into narrow passageways where uh, they could sleep it off, sleep off exhaustion and sleep off hunger. Uh, so eventually VP began to fall behind expectations pretty badly. Um, and eventually it became very evident to his British supervisors that this was a man who was clearly not cut out for the job. So he was unceremoniously fired. Um, he had no desire to return home because he had already too much pride. Uh, he had too much shame and too much pride, too much guilt. Um, so he decided to go to Bombay, where he was selling hand towels outside Victoria Terminus on the pavement for quite some time. Um, and this is something that I pick up that I picked up quite a lot across the entire trajectory of his career was serendipity, uh, which is, you know, he had the knack of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, because, you know, it was in Bombay that again, his life turned around when he met some mysterious English person. Uh, again, we don't know his name. Um, and this English person gave him a letter of recommendation for the home department in the government of India. Uh, and told him to go to Delhi um, with that recommendation. Um, and he would keep meeting uh, supervisors who were foreign, who were Englishmen, who were incredibly supportive of his ideas, of his potential, uh, and of his abilities. Um, and I think that also played a huge role in taking him as far as it did, apart from his own very important personal qualities. Uh, the fact that he encountered uh, supervisors or uh, bosses who were open to supporting him as much as they did, uh, that played a huge role. So in 1914, you basically have VP arriving in Delhi uh, for the first time. And it's uh, for once, it's bad timing because it's already summer. Uh, and the government of India has packed its bags and gone off to Simba. Um, and he has no choice but to catch another train and go after them. Um, and in Simla, again, he meets with a possible rebuff because he's told, look, we don't have any uh, vacancies right now. Um, but he was resolute. He said, look, I give me anything to do. I will do it. Um, so compromise was struck. A particular clerk was on vacation and they said, okay, you can temporarily fill in for him. Uh, for as long as he's on vacation. Um, and that was good enough for him. I mean, it was only going to be a couple of months, but he thought, okay, this is better than nothing. Um, because really speaking, this was his last shot. Um, so he, he stayed in Simla for um, a couple of months, uh, walked around, made friends uh, with the people who were working alongside him. Uh, but by the time June was rolling around, he still didn't have any prospects of staying on in, in the home department. He didn't have any prospects of uh, another job elsewhere. 
So he didn't know too much about what to do until he discovered that uh, the British Raj had set up a directorate of statistics in Calcutta, and it would have its headquarters in Delhi. Um, and to his mind, he thought two plus two is equal to four. This, these guys are going to need uh, manpower to, to staff the department. Um, so he puts in an application to the registrar of the home department asking to be transferred to the directorate of statistics. And that's the document I was telling you about. That's the first document that I came across uh, while I was researching the book. Um, and it's dated 1914, uh, May 1914. Um, and that is the document that made me realize that this was somebody who'd been in government service for much longer than I had thought uh, that he was. Um, so his application to be transferred to the Directorate of Statistics is granted. Um, and in June, uh, he's due to shift to Delhi. And June, as we all know, is when the First World War actually began. Uh, and I think this was serendipitous too, because once the First World War began, you had uh, British officers being called home to enlist. Uh, in the army, which meant that the Imperial Secretariat needed as many hands on deck as it could get. Uh, so whether they were temporary men, whether they were permanent men, they needed staff. Um, so VP was safe for the time being. So his early years were tumultuous to say the least. But from it, I get, I got the image of this boy who grew up in a spoiled, pampered way, but when he was actually put to the test, he not only pushed as hard as he could, but he adapted and implemented what he was learning at every curve to the next step that uh, life took him to. Um, and I think those were the building blocks for uh, the future. So he starts as a pampered kid and ends up taking on whatever challenges that life throws <laughs> at him his way. Um, so could you tell me about, uh, you know, if if you were to introduce VP Menon to, uh, hmm. for someone who is unaware of who VP Menon is, no one knows, um, for an individual, for let's say for, for the audience who do not know uh, who VP Menon is, the civil servant, the one who's been in bureaucracy, what would be like, the kind of clickbaity thing that you would tell about VP Menon that would grasp people's uh, attention that, okay, so this is a person that we definitely have to know about. I think the easiest clickbait uh, is to say that he was Sardar Patel's right-hand man, but I mean, um, I would generally uh, tend to diverge from that one uh, because if you look at it, uh, VP Menon was, um, somebody who was extremely inst instrumental to the process of constitutional reform by 1935, right? So you had, uh, he was chaperoning the 1937 elections. Uh, he was drafting a prototype of the instrument of accession. Um, you know, later on that same instrument of accession would be adapted to the model that we know of and that is archived today. Uh, he was instrumental in all the major talks of the 1940s that pushed India closer and closer to the transfer of power. Uh, he laid out the blueprint, blueprint for the Simla conference. Uh, he 
what else didn't he do? He was secretary to the Ministry of States. He was uh, the person whose signature we still have on the instrument of accession for all 565 states. Um, and he was somebody who was, uh, without whom uh, certainly Sadar Patel could not have completed the process of integration and, and accession. So I don't know whether that's debating, but I do think that it's important to be said about uh, about him yes definitely um so his initial years in high level offices of bureaucracy where he serves as the uh, reform uh, reform commissioner for uh, uh, the three viceroys so tell us a bit yeah. about that about his engagement in the colonial regime uh, of of uh, top level bureaucracy of the colonial regime so his uh, engagement with the colonial regime, uh, like I said, began uh, as a very temporary person uh, throughout the war years. Uh, by 1917, you had Edwin Montague saying, uh, making a proclamation that was incredibly important for India at the time, uh, saying that you know the British government would start looking at greater Indianization of the administrative services. Uh, and then you had Edwin Montague coming to India to take a tour of the provinces and the princely states. Um, and that is when you had uh, the very first beginnings of the reforms branch, the branch that BP would be associated with throughout his uh, professional life uh, coming into being. So obviously Montague would need a sort of entourage to accompany him across uh, the length and breadth of India, right? He, he would need somebody uh, who could help him minute the meetings, help him uh, draft thoughts uh, of the leaders, <coughs> sorry, the leaders that he met and the princes that he met um, and see where that could possibly take them. And now that he made this declaration for greater Indianization, where would it lead to in terms of constitutional reform? Uh, VP was made part of this uh, emergency branch, as it was called then, and it was headed by uh, India's first reforms commissioner at that point, Sir William Maris. Um, he wasn't he wasn't styled a reforms commissioner at that point, obviously, but I mean he was uh, in retrospect that's what he was. Um, and when VP joined this particular entourage, uh, his professional life began looking up greatly. Uh, his salary increased. Um, he also began to get the kind of training on the job that uh, no amount of examinations or books could give you, right? So he was very much present in the room when debates about constitutional reform were taking place, about uh, legalities and technicalities uh, that were important uh, for what would become the Montague Kemsford report later. He was very much in the room. He was in fact, uh, the typist of the ultimate report that was published uh, in 1918. Um, and it exposed him also to what happens when two egos or multiple large egos, large personalities are together in the same room. How can you navigate that? How can you, um, sort of get the best outcome, despite the fact that you have large personalities in the room. Um, it also exposed him to the tedium that this job entailed, right? Because a lot of it was drafting, redrafting, uh, endless haggling over very minute points of uh, legal technicalities. Um, nothing that we would consider exciting. 
But for VP at that point, it was providing invaluable training for the years ahead. Um, and he then got, um, it was also very personal, I think, because thereafter he got um, the biggest shock of his life when Jallianwala Bagh happened, right? Because here was an imperial secretariat with which he was working, uh, for whom he was working. Um, and yet you had a massacre of this scale being carried out in Amritsar. Um, and it shook him to the core. And it was a moment of great personal and moral dilemma for him. And that would continue throughout the early 1920s. Uh, it would take a few years for him to come to de uh, a decision about what he wanted to do about this and how he wanted to go ahead. And it was by the early 1920s that he decided that staying within a reforms branch was possibly the best way that he could contribute to an outcome for India's independence and transfer of power. Uh, he was never somebody who um, was very publicly sloganeering or somebody who you'd find at a public meeting. Um, in fact, uh, for him, it, it meant more if you were behind the scenes being able to contribute to something constructive that you could actually see change happening uh, within a constitutional framework. Um, and he thought, okay, fine, if this is the path that the British government of India is taking, um, and if these are the promises that are being made in, in collusion with the people on the streets and the political world on the streets, the political leaders of the time, um, then there is a possibility for larger change that I can be part of. Um, and it's a dilemma that not only he faced, but a lot of young Indian ICS officers. Uh, and at this point, I should make clear that VP Menon was never an ICS officer. He never sat for the exams. Um, he would reach the pinnacle of his career without ever having sat for the ICS exams, which is why I say other ICS officers. Um, so other ICS officers who were his age were facing this dilemma, right? So you have, uh, I came across this very lovely anecdote in HVR Iyengar's oral uh, history, uh, where he was facing the same kind of moral personal dilemma that VP was facing in the 1920s. And he, go, he went later to Sardar Patel and he said, look, we're all working for the same Raj, the same empire that is promising us freedom and yet seems that it's not going to give us freedom anytime soon. Do you think that we're doing the right thing? Um, and Sardar Patel was quite practical and he said, look, once we achieve independence, which we will, we are going to need civil servants, administrators who are trained in the art of governance and administration. Uh, you need to be trained for this. You can't just take over these uh, positions. So what you're doing right now is practical. It has an eye on uh, the larger game, the longer term. So by all means continue. And I think that was somewhat the conclusion that VP came to by himself as well. Um, so you see VP actually joining the reforms branch in the late 1920s when it was set up as a, as a a reforms branch in itself. Um, and he would never leave the reforms branch, like I said. Uh, it was, again, for me, uh, the role of serendipity here, because here you had somebody who would ultimately go on to contribute so much to India's political reform. 
um, and what better place to do it from than the reforms branch. Um, again, he also had a very supportive boss here. So Hawthorne Lewis was his, uh, was his superior in the reforms branch in the late 1920s. And Hawthorne Lewis was considered to be one of the finest minds uh, in the ICS at the time. Um, and he was uh, VP superior from the late 1920s right until uh, the late 1930s, uh, late 1930s, early 1940s. So you have a decade of this man who is not only considered brilliant in his own in his own field and his, in his own right, but also a man who was willing to listen to somebody who was a an Indian, uh, b in junior to him, uh, and c brought a new perspective to the table of thought. Right. So you have this very first meeting with Linlithgow, for instance, which I talk about in my book, where VP is brought into the room along with uh, Hawthorne Lewis when Linlithgow wants to meet his reforms commissioner, uh, Hawthorne Lewis takes VP men in, into the room with him. And they're discussing how federation can be taken forward. Uh, and VP at that, at that moment says, you know, uh, let's take defense commu uh, communications and external affairs away from the princes. Uh, they can keep everything else for now. Um, and it was a pretty win-win situation because the center already controlled that. And center is, um, you know, the wrong, possibly the wrong word to use, but the British government already controlled uh, these three crucial aspects of um, uh, affairs within the states. But what struck Linlithgow and took him aback was the fact that this was an incredibly junior official, Indian official, speaking out of turn in his presence. And... He was completely taken aback by that. But that stood out in stark contrast to somebody like Hawthorne Lewis, uh, who was very supportive of VP. So it was under Hawthorne Lewis that VP actually went to London for the first time. Uh, it was under Hawthorne Lewis that VP could play as large a role in the 1937 elections uh, as he did. Um, so, I mean, uh, his early years in the reforms office and his rise in the reforms office came largely because of his own uh, incredible ability to contribute to what was happening there, uh, as well as, and, and that in turn stemmed from the fact that he had been part of uh, the first big steps forward in constitutional reform that began in 1917-1918. Uh, so because he had prior experience over there, he was obviously considered to be the man to on here. Add to that the fact that he had picked up um, an incredibly vast knowledge of statistics from his time at the Directorate of Statistics. So he had uh, facts and figures at his fingertips, which was incredibly important if you wanted to run uh, an office as complex as the reforms branch. Um, added to which he had uh, an eidetic memory. So he had a photographic memory, which, is, uh, which I thought was pretty uh, awesome. Um, which is essentially that, you know, he, you could show him a page of any textbook or any chapter and he would, he could recite that verbatim uh, even a couple of days later. Uh, he was already on his way to also becoming a very skilled draftsman uh, and drafting is uh, incredibly important <laughs> as a bureaucrat. It's also um, one of the reasons why bureaucrats and why uh, a bureaucratic role might get overlooked um, in larger movements because um, who wants to read about drafting and redrafting 
but uh, he was already bringing that skill to um, an office that was already becoming very important as far as the British government of India was concerned. Um, so you have, uh, through your book, also answered a very uncomfortable question of, you know, something that is not usually asked in public domain about uh, where do the loyalties of these particular individuals like? As I remember uh, when we had um, the army officials, especially in, uh, the police officials or the court judges, and these sort of mm -hmm. officers continuing from the colonial regime, and they uh, had their positions or they maintained their positions even in independent India, especially mm -hmm. say forces, for example, where KM uh, Karyapa uh, was still the uh, mm -hmm. field marshal. Uh, the question was, where did the loyalties or, you know, the uh, allegiances of these people lie? Was it with the imperialist uh, colonizing masters, which they served previously? Or is it with the new nationalist government? So I, I think that was like one of the most central questions that people are very uncomfortable talking about uh, in the past, especially when so, you know, someone like Karyapa is very celebrated here, at least in uh, uh, Karnataka and Mysore and Kodagu. Mm -hmm. So uh, apart from that, I just want to understand uh, how was his role? So you mentioned about uh, bureaucrats uh, being overlooked because who wants to know about drafting and redrafting? So uh, is, is what essentially makes the uh, bureaucratic role so overlooked? I, I mean, it's probably not the monotonous and boring job that no one wants to listen about, but uh, where ministers and peoples and people of high profile take credit for what they are, uh, what the bureaucrats are actually doing. Uh, even to this day, bureaucracy, as they say, is behind closed door and whether the good happens, the minister takes it, whether the bad happens, the minister takes it. Uh, so uh, how essential is the secrecy of holding bureaucrats behind closed doors? Uh, you know, do you think through the work of Menin that you have come across that, uh, have you felt more uh, empathetic over, uh, you know, bureaucrats who put so much effort but are never recognized for uh, what they do in the public world? I do, I do, because, you know, I mean, you, you have to take into account also the fact that this was an incredibly turbulent phase. In, this, in the case of VP specifically, this was a very turbulent phase in modern Indian history, right? So everything was happening at the speed of light almost. Uh, you know, you had a lot of back and forth as far as paperwork was concerned, a lot of back and forth as far as missions coming out from England was concerned. Uh, you had... Uh, politics being played behind the scenes. So you had to keep up with all of that. Uh, so bureau bureaucracy then was incredibly different. Um, it was a, a pressure cooker situation, I think. Um, and I think the stories of bureaucrats do get overlooked also because like I said, it's, it's largely stereotyping, right? Because you don't, when you think of a bureaucrat, you think of Babu, you think of somebody pushing paper, you don't necessarily think of somebody who's in the thick of the action uh, and who's making the news and the headlines. Um, you, you don't also think of an independence movement. Uh, you don't think of a transfer of power as a freedom struggle. Those are all big words, they're big phrases with a lot of meaning. Uh, bureaucracy tends to get overshadowed by that. So it's also important to look at bureaucracy in context to what is happening at a particular point uh, in history and politics. 
So as far as the freedom struggle was concerned, as far as integration of states was concerned, as far as transfer of power was concerned, it's when you're reading about it as a reader, you don't necessarily you don't associate it with bureaucracy right you what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a freedom struggle you think of people like nehru you think of people like gandhi uh, patel jinnah uh, these were the people who were the face of the movement these were the people we associate with it uh, we associate their important speeches their important movements uh you know those are the milestones that we consider when we're looking at modern indian history nobody's really looking at uh, this bureaucrat was drafting this particular act at that particular point in time right when 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 you have people as charismatic as all of these people i just mentioned you don't necessarily think of the little people behind the scenes but it was actually the little people behind the scenes that were actually making the wheels of the revolution here in india spin right you couldn't have got to where we are without the paperwork without the acts without the uh, signatures on the dotted line without the pieces of paper and the uh, signatures on those pieces of paper you wouldn't have a formalization of it right you wouldn't have a legitimization of it um and i think the bureaucrats of that time gave us that and i think that is a role in history that's gone largely overlooked um when i was researching this and when i was writing it as well um and i was reading through the oral histories of people like hm patel or hr aingar the level of work that they were doing the scope especially around uh, 1946 47 uh in the aftermath of partition particularly um it was phenomenal you know it, it reads it may read oh, superficially very boringly you know you had a partition committee and it was looking at x y and z but when you look at the people at the heart of it and the scope and scale of uh not just administrative difficulties but also the emotional difficulties uh of not just seeing your country becoming free after so many years and service but coming at such a heavy cost uh, of blood of emotion uh, of immense emo- emotional and personal professional pressure um it's something that gets overlooked and i think that is something that possibly needs to be looked at a lot more than it's being looked at now so uh, you also mention um uh vp's ability to manage when there are two egos in a room where he is able to you know settle down arguments maybe or find a way or navigate his way out um so tell us about how he was able to do this especially when it came to the integration of uh, states uh you know how he was key to the integration of how uh he had to go around with sardar wallabhai patel to uh you know uh, integrate all these 565 states and how key was he to that and especially uh when it came to the times of partition and okay mm-hmm. so these are like two different questions but uh, to to merge them as one is about the question of partition and second about the integration of states so how key was his role in all of this in navigating uh, the issues between not just the you know the union of india but also the states who probably most of the times didn't want to be a part uh, of of the union so a lot of this goes back to vp's own relationship with uh, sardar patel 
which really took off in 1946. Um, and Sadar Patel had basically encountered VP before, he certainly heard of VP before, uh, but he only actually began a professional and personal friendship and relationship with VP uh, in the autumn of 1946. And it was already a pretty fraught time in Indian history. Uh, Pakistan and partition were uh, very much on the cards. Um, you had, uh, certainly the writing was on the wall, the Raj certainly intended to leave India, we just didn't know when. Um, Jinnah was calling for direct action day. Um, the Calcutta killings would happen in 1946. So their relationship was actually forged under a lot of political fire. But intrinsically, they were very similar yet also very different is what I found, right? So Sadar Patel was uh, typically very reserved. He was pretty taciturn, never spoke unless it was absolutely necessary to speak. He was very swift to act. Uh, his judgment was always very cool. Um, there was no hint of, uh, you know, a mercurial temperament, an uneven temperament. Uh, VP Menon was somebody who was outspoken. He was someone who had very decisive ideas as well. He was not afraid to put those ideas before Sadar Patel. Um, and by this point, his uh, knowledge of constitutional of the constitutional process was unparalleled. Um, and like I said, he, he, if he had been a good draftsman in the early 1930s, he was an excellent draftsman now. He could uh, sense the legal flaws in uh, pretty much anything you put before him. Uh, so it made sense that uh, for Sadar Patel, this was somebody who could become very, very helpful to him. Um, and it stemmed from there. Uh, that's, one, that's one aspect. The other aspect is particularly with regard to integration and the princes. The princes were um, a very mixed bag of uh, egos, large and small. Um, Many of them had egos that were more large than small, but you did have certain certain rulers like the Nawab of Palanpur who sort of looked at the writing on the wall as early as 1931 and said, OK, look, uh, there's no way, there's no hope for us. Uh, we are going to have to exceed at some point uh, once Paramount C lapses, whenever that is. Uh, but certainly you had states uh, like your typical Hyderabad, Travancore, uh, Junagarh, those were all very troublesome states. Baroda was very troublesome. Um, Sadar Patel had started talks with these princes also in the autumn of 1946, right? Um, you definitely had an idea of a state's committee at that point, a state secretariat. Uh, it wasn't called the State's Department in 1946. But definitely the idea of a department to take on the princes and to deal with the princes was very much in play. Now, it's to be expected that none of these princes were in, or their advisors were in favor of such a department because they felt, you know, that their sovereignty would be impeded, uh, their rights would be taken away. Uh, what did it mean for them as independent rulers? What did it mean for them uh, in terms of privileges? Uh, those were uh, pretty naughty questions with which Sardar Patel, Nehru, uh, at, at that stage, Gopalaswami Iyengar, uh, were dealing with throughout uh, late 1946, early 1947. Um, sorry. Um, so by 
the spring of 1947, you had meetings with the states uh, committee taking place, which Sardar Patel was sitting in on. Um, and he had already made his intentions clear uh, at that point. He was perfectly affable. He was perfectly ready to entertain them for lunch uh, or for dinner. But as he told uh, the Nawab of Bhopal at one particular meeting, it's not so much a question of uh, us taking over your rights if you hand over your rights. Um, and to me, that was an incredibly significant statement because it meant that the Sardar meant business. Uh, he wasn't just going to sit by and let India disintegrate into a number of discrete unions all over the place uh, as soon as transfer of power was attained. Um, and that carried on until the summer of 1947, when finally the idea to sort of institutionalize a state's ministry was brought in place. Um, so based on their relationship, Sardar Patel's first choice as secretary for the Ministry of States was VP Menon. Uh, and by this point, VP was uh, completely exhausted because he had dealt with, uh, you know, the transfer of power with the fallout of uh, partition. Uh, he had been uh, a member of every important committee that was set up and there were several uh, important committees that were set up to, you know, oversee every aspect of transfer of power and partition. Um, and he was completely exhausted. Um, he also was very nervous, which uh, I found uh, both endearing and revealing. Uh, he was quite nervous about working with Sardar Patel professionally, right? Because so far it had been an informal sort of capacity. Uh, I mean, he was known everywhere as uh, Patel's uh, menon, but he had never worked with Sardar Patel uh, formally, and he was very worried about how they would work together formally and what it would do for their personal relationship as friends. Uh, added to which, like I said, he was completely exhausted. But Sadar Patel insisted, so uh, VP Menon became Secretary of Ministry of States. Um, he built on a foundation that the Sadar had laid over 1946 and early 1947, which is uh, a sort of mixture of charm and sort of implicit coercion, right? Uh, so his statement to the Nawab of uh, Bhopal was, like I said, very revealing of the tactic that the uh, that Sadar Patel would not hesitate to use should it come to that. Um, and VP would build on that uh, as 1947 to 1951, uh, we see uh, VP Menon taking charge of traveling the length and breadth of India. And honestly speaking, I don't even think my biography did justice to the scale of this effort because there were just so many rulers to deal with. There were so many aspects to take into consideration, uh, so many personalities to navigate and each ruler required a different approach. Uh, each ruler required uh, a certain amount of charm with a hint of coercion or outright coercion uh, in order to integrate uh, India into the modern union that we saw uh, once we stood free in 1947. Um, and by 1949, it was quite apparent that Sardar Patel was too ill to do this uh, whole physical journey up and down and across India. So every plan was greenlit by Sardar Patel, certainly, but the face of the integration movement became VP Menon. 
which is why you have his signature on the instrument of accessions, uh, you know, across across the country. There was not a single prince in the country that didn't recognize that this was the man who wielded um, the absolute power as far as uh, getting them to accede to the Indian Union was concerned. And there, there are two incidents that that particularly stood out to me. One was uh, a reception that Mountbatten gave on the 28th of July, uh, 1947. Um, and he had invited uh, all the princes who were still wary about exceeding or not exceeding um, to the Indian Union. Um, and the princes were no strangers uh, to being wined and dined uh, by the Viceroy. But what was interesting to me was the particular order with which they were shown into the Viceregal, uh, you know, the hall. Uh, which is they were brought in by the vice by, by, by the viceroy's ADC. They were taken to Mountbatten. From there, VP Menon would take them across the room to Sardar Patel. Now that to me delineated exactly how the flow of power was going, and who was holding the reins of power, who was ultimate supremo, <clears throat> and who was the key player with that supremo, um, and. The princes who were present there also recognized this. That was one. That was one incident. The other was in 1948, uh, when VP had gone to discuss uh, integration with the princes of Bundelkhand and Bagelkhand, um, and you had, uh, you know, all these princes sitting out in the in the lawns um, of the Raja of Sarilla's residence. And VP was there talking to some local leaders and he was very dressed down because it was incredibly hot at that point. Um, so he was, you know, in a shirt, trousers, uh, chappals. But there was not a single prince there who didn't know that this was the man who held absolute power by that point. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's incredibly important because you recognize at that point how key he had become, not just to Sardar Patel, but also to the process of integration as well. So uh, speaking about integration, I just wanted uh, to know, I mean, we can't obviously highlight over all the uh, minute details that you've mentioned, <laughs> but that's one thing I definitely want to mention here is that the book is so intricately uh, written that th that's the very point that every page it, the book is a page turner where you want to know what happens next and it's so gripping the narrative is so gripping so I just wanted uh, I just want to know if you could uh, highlight a little bit on the episode of the integration of Kashmir uh, for us maybe maybe so not in detail just a little uh, so that the people get an overview of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I for details, uh, the book exists. Definitely. <laughs> but but, but uh, just to, for an overview, it was one of the, uh, state, the, one of the three big states that uh, are talked about ad nauseum. Uh, it's one of the only states now that continues to shed its, uh, that light of history on modern politics even today. Um, and, you know, the British actually weren't too sure about Hari Singh at that point. You know, there are different views about Hari Singh. Um, you know, Srinath Raghavan says that, uh, you know, he was a man of, uh, of completely flexible political intellect. Uh, his son, however, begs to differ and says that his father was more interested in racing than he was in actually governing the state. 
but at the heart of it all you had a man who didn't know what to do i mean logically speaking as far as the religious composition of the population went as far as the geographical contiguities went uh the logical idea would be to accede to pakistan uh but hari singh really didn't want to become part of a self professed uh islamic state he also knew that one of his greatest uh, opponents outside the palace walls was sheikh abdullah um so he didn't really know what to do and you had this flurry of visits uh from every single political dignitary that you could think of from mountbatten to gandhi to nehru everyone had visited kashmir uh by the by the end of july 1947 you had all of them been to kashmir to try and talk hari singh into signing with uh india um hari singh still hadn't done that um you know then you have india tightening the noose on kashmir so to speak you know pakistan at one point uh decided to up its ante and it blockaded uh food supplies kerosene uh from uh kashmir kashmir asked uh india for 5000 gallons of petrol india sent 500 gallons of petrol so you had a state that was completely caught between uh two countries who definitely wanted it to be part of each other's uh territorial unions when uh independence was uh, brought about the crux of this whole story obviously boils down to the date of um uh, accession and when that happened and you know why is there a divergence uh in the dates um you know which there is uh, because you have docu i mean alastair lamb has looked at this victoria showfield has looked at this um the official narrative came to be vp menon's narrative therefore the government of india's narrative which is uh that hari singh signed on the dotted line on the 26th which is when we moved in uh troops uh according to documents uh that have been declassified and stated in lionel carter's uh partition observed which is something that i referred to which i found incredibly eye opening um you know as as late as the 27th of october on the evening of 27th of october vp menon was still not in delhi he was uh still in jammu uh with hari singh there were rumors uh, swirling in delhi by that point that uh hari singh had signed on the dotted line but nobody really had any idea because he hadn't returned uh so there is a date divergence here which i have addressed in that chapter because you know it uh, it's a matter of public record really speaking as uh, when you have documents um in the public domain they need to be addressed um the quest what i also found interesting as far as kashmir was concerned was this was one state about which uh vp remained quite open uh personally speaking about the personal outcomes of what should have happened in kashmir and what didn't um where he says you know we promised them we as in india promised the people of kashmir a plebiscite uh and he never gave them one and we should have um nowhere else have i found even in his recordings with hodson did i find um such a personal statement uh in in every single uh discussion about the states particularly about the major states uh he stands by what uh we did 
uh, he stands by India's actions in each state as being a question of national interest as something that needed to be done. Uh, for instance, he supported Operation Polo to the hilt. Uh, he said that it was, a, it was something that needed to be done given uh, Hyderabad's incredible strategic importance, uh, as well as for the important strategic importance uh, of presenting a unified picture to the outside world. Uh, as far as Kashmir is concerned, that was uh, something for me which I found uh, revealing because he's never he was never personally honest about uh, any of the states, really speaking, in such a way. But uh, for intrinsic details, my book, please read. Definitely. Uh, so that is actually one thing I absolutely love about the book, that it's not just a standalone biography of uh, V.P. Menon, but it is surrounded by the time and space that he was in. And all of those details come in, and that is what makes the book so so very interesting. And, I'm, uh, you know, I think of all the... Uh, I mean, I've, I've only done... This is my second biography that I'm interviewing. The first one was Nauruji. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been an absolutely eye-catching narrative. So uh, just one question about the book before we go to concluding questions, because we are running short of time, uh, is about uh, how was the relationship between uh, Mountbatten and VP? And uh, this is going a little back because I skipped the question yeah. while I was scrolling down, uh, was about the relationship between VP and Mountbatten. And uh, if you could tell us a little, little bit about the Menon plan. So when Mountbatten came out to India, he was, um, you know, a completely different kettle of fish. Um, he was flamboyant, he was dashing, he was charming. He was very aware that he was a good looking man. Um, he came with certain set ideas about how he wanted to conduct uh, the transfer of power process and how he wished to leave his, uh, his very personal stamp on that process. Um, in none of these plans in the initial months that he was here, um, in, from March 1947, was VP Menon included. Uh, because as we all know, Mountbatten came with a handful of personally selected advisors and he stuck to those advisors. Um, he didn't include VP in any of these plans. Um, so he, Mountbatten and his advisors uh, essentially sat down and formed what is known as Plan Balkan, uh, which would be the plan that would go officially to Whitehall. Um, I'm not going to go into the uh, absolute legalities of Plan Balkan, but briefly speaking, it was uh, essentially that if partition did happen, uh, Bengal, and pa Bengal and Punjab would be partitioned, Silhet would be part of uh, Assam. Um, and essentially it would leave the provinces free to decide whether they wanted to join uh, the Indian Union or not. Uh, VP Menon said he was never shown this plan at all. In fact, he was so completely sidelined that he threatened to resign. Uh, it was only Edwina Mountbatten's ability to talk him down from actually resigning and speaking quite personally as Mountbatten's wife to Mountbatten himself uh, that VP was taken up to Simla in the summer of 1947. So the initial months of Mountbatten's existence in India was, um, it was non-existent as far as VP was concerned. And this was a matter of great professional resentment for VP uh, because he felt quite rightly that he had the experience and the knowledge uh, to contribute to uh, a feasible plan for transfer of power at this stage. In fact, by this point, 
uh, he had, along with uh, Sardar Patel, outlined the transfer of power plan, which had gone ahead to Whitehall in 1946, and which Mountbatten had, in fact, looked at as part of his brief before coming out to India. Now, that transfer of power plan, which uh, Rajmohan Gandhi says was uh, finalized around Christmas 1946, uh, was pretty in uh, it was pretty inclusive right you had basically speaking uh, two central governments each on the basis of dominion status uh, and dominion status was something that was it was very key because it would give india flexibility to stay or not stay within the commonwealth as she chose um sardar patel had given his blessing to that plan and that plan had like i said gone to whitehall mountbatten had looked at it and not referred to it again um, so plan Balkan was the plan that went ahead to Whitehall. Uh, VP Menon threatens to resign. Edwina Mountbatten talks him down. Um, and as a sort of platitude, he's uh, taken as a sort of pacifying measure, he's taken to Simla, um, where Mountbatten's basic idea is to call all important political leaders. Um, and by the time Plan Balkan returns from Whitehall, he shows the plan Balkan to those leaders and they have no choice but to sign. Um, a spanner is put in the works here because you have VP Menon who comes up and says, look, I don't agree with what you've done and with the plan that's gone ahead to Whitehall. So Mountbatten says, what plan did you have in mind? So VP Menon tells him the same plan that, has that uh, Sardar Patel had given his blessing to in 1946. Now Mountbatten knows that this is a better plan. And if it has Sadar Patel's blessing, it will have Congress blessing. It will have Nehru's blessing as well. But it's too late because, you know, there's another plan that's already in the works. But he says, OK, look, go and tell Nehru about this. Uh, see what he has to say. But don't mention that uh, another plan has gone ahead to London. Um, and that is what VP does. Um, and it is, in fact, the very beginning of a deterioration in the relationship between VP and Nehru because VP knows very well that he has omitted to tell his own prime minister in the making uh, the truth. Um, and he knows that Nehru is going to accept this plan because like I said, if Sardar Patel has given his blessing, there's no way Nehru would not have approved of it. So Nehru did approve of it. So when Plan Balkan comes back and Nehru has shown Plan Balkan instead of a, the completely different plan his uh, reforms commissioner had outlined to him, uh, he obviously completely loses his temper. Um, and he has an, inf it, it, there's this whole in, uh, scene of uh, Nehru's incendiary uh, breakdown about how he couldn't believe that this was the plan that uh, Mountbatten had and it would lead to a complete ulsterization of India and a complete balkanization of India. Um, and there's complete chaos. Uh, VP Menon is then again summoned to Vice Regal Lodge. Um, and he hears out both Nehru and Mountbatten. Um, and then he modifies his own plan according to what he's heard from both parties. And it's all done sort of verbally on the spot, but because Nehru finally approves of that plan, Mountbatten says, okay, we need this in writing, right? So we, Nehru is leaving at 6 p.m. So you're going to have to produce this by 6 p.m. Um, 
and so that leaves him with four hours to put together a plan because by this point it was already lunchtime on 17th May. Um, so he puts together this plan, which is the Menon plan. It's known variously as the June 3rd plan. Mountbatten later usurped this whole term and made it the Mountbatten plan. Um, and this is essentially the Menon plan that's sort of hammered out in four hours. Um, and that is the plan that eventually then goes to Whitehall and then gets uh, formalized into the Indian Independence Act. Thank you. So I think that's one of the most interesting uh, <laughs> events that has occurred uh, and especially being beautifully captured in the book. Uh, if I'm not wrong, I think uh, in in um, Alex von Tunzelman's book, uh, Indian Summer, she's also beautifully captured uh, the narrative of partition. And that is one incident that I was really intrigued by when Nehru just uh, has this fury about Mountbatten's idea over the plan that uh, he proposes. So coming to a couple of concluding questions uh, after we've spoken about the book was, um, how do you think that this current work or the project or biography of uh, V.P. Menon holds um, sort of relevance in, in our contemporary understanding of how we see India as, as a democracy or, you know, as a, uh, trying to learn lessons from it? So what is the kind of relevance of the work that you've uh, written? I think, I think the relevance of it, um, I don't want to sound grandiose about it, but the relevance of it, uh, for one, is definitely that I want to start something where people behind the scenes of power are looked at a lot more than they are. Uh, that's one thing that I want this book to sort of hopefully trigger. Uh, I want also, I wanted uh, somebody who remained in the political shadows and historical shadows to come out uh, into the, in, well, not the limelight, but certainly into the light, so that when we talk of VP Menon today, uh, A, there's no mix-up between uh, VP and uh, VK, Krishna Menon, uh, but B, also, we then look at VP Menon as a very real contributor and a very real architect of modern India. Uh, we certainly wouldn't be where we are without either the uh, immense stalwarts with whom we associate the independence movement today, but also people like VP Menon, who uh, took all the legal and technical steps, who negotiated the egos in the room, uh, who drafted the drafts that needed to be drafted, who headed the committees that needed to be headed and took the action that needed to be taken. Um, in order to shape and pull together the union that we had uh, on the uh, when we stood free finally. So those are two things that I want and that I hope that this book is able to do. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so uh, apart from this particular work, we just want to know what is your current work? Is there something that you're currently working on? What is the next work that we can look forward to reading from you? Uh, it, I, can't, I, I can't tell you much about it, except that it is possibly another biography. Uh -huh. um, not too sure about um, the personality, though, but I do, want to, I do want to keep focusing on people behind uh, the scenes of power. So let's see what happens. So another narrative, gripping narrative for us to look forward <laughs> to. I hope so. Um, so you've been someone who's active in the field of uh, engaging with foreign policy as well as engaging with history. 
um, active on both fronts. So for someone who would, uh, for someone who wants to pursue, say, history and in academia, and also probably have a leg in foreign policy, uh, what, a, what, what course would you suggest that a person takes while, you know, trying to shape himself, learning uh, and experiencing through? Uh... Um, gosh, I'm the last person to talk about this, honestly, because uh, my whole academic career has been so completely unconventional. Um, you know, because I know that, pe- I know that, uh, you know, uh, postdoctorate and doctorate degrees are so important, but I myself don't have one. Um, but I don't think, for instance, that the lack of a degree prevents you or should prevent you uh, from going ahead and learning as unconventionally as possible. So if you have done an undergrad in history and you want to switch to another major, uh, which might interest you uh, at that current phase of your life, um, I'm all for it, honestly, as long as you can sort of um, make gains on that later, if it's if it's something that you want to stick with later, I think uh, that is the way to go. I'm not somebody who, um, I'm not going to say believes, but I'm not somebody who has had the degrees to honestly call myself um, uh, a trained historian in the absolute conventional sense of the word. But I do believe that you can achieve academic excellence um, without a degree. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is that is definitely true. Uh, so the uh, actually the question was in lines about uh, say f- for an individual who would be interested to uh, not just pursue history as an academic course, but also the same. I mean, because academia is not really a lucrative place for someone to be in. I mean, I've never heard someone be like, okay, okay, you're pursuing academia. That's, that's a great deal. You should go ahead and do it because uh, across the length and breadth of the people that I've spoken to, everyone's been like, okay, that's good that you want to do, but just be careful what you're going to do with it. Uh, so uh, that's that's obviously not something people very lucratively look forward to doing in life. But at the same time, you know, for someone to ho- have an open option uh, to engage with, uh, uh, say, foreign policy or public policy or just policy making in general or anything or assessing policies, uh, it, it's like what avenues would you suggest that someone has in their, their eyes open to or some look out for something? Uh, make sure they are, what kind of things that might keep people in touch with these fields? You could definitely uh, go for diploma degrees or independent degrees uh, if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I went ahead uh, and did an MA and MPhil, like I said, in uh, Chinese studies uh, at the Department of East Asian Studies in Delhi University. Um, That is something that I did. And in between, I interned um, at IDSA Uh, And then, like I said, I worked at the Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies for a couple of years. Um, And if that's something that appeals to you, uh, think tanking was never something that appealed to me. But if that's something that appeals to you, then you automatically do find yourself contributing to that field in terms of whether it's producing papers or uh, policy briefs or whether you are uh, as, as simple as networking. Uh, by talking to people you meet at conferences, by building your networks that way. 
so there are lots of ways in which you can do it. This uh, I know that institutions like the Takshashila Institution, for instance, has uh, independent uh, diploma degrees in public policy. Uh, it has modules in teaching foreign policy as well. Uh, so there are institutions today which are recognizing the importance of, you know, having an unconventional trajectory, but also having the credentials to back up that trajectory. Mm-hmm. So if that's something that uh, anyone wants to do, that option is uh, pretty open here. Okay, thank you so much. I think that brings us to the end of our interview. Uh, I would really recommend all of our listeners and viewers to definitely pick up a copy of the book because uh, it's it's definitely a gripping, not just a book. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a complete biography. That's one thing that I want to insist uh, throughout the episode is that it's, it's, it is a biography that might be the central core of the project, but it's completely surrounded by the stories and narratives that are central to uh, the integration, separate, I mean, independence, uh, partition and integration of India. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So, thank you stop. for having me, Omar. Thank you so much. I think I'll stop. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our episode in conversation with Ms. Narayani Basu. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. There is a series of such Guftugu with a line of amazingly curated authors and scholars on history of the subcontinent. Check out our website for more, www.indiacolonized.com for more blogs and podcasts on India's modern and contemporary history. If any of you listeners are interested to work with us, we've recently just started a rolling internship program for students in the field of research content writing, social media engagement, and much more. For more details, visit our website. The link is being given in description. Do consider following us on social media sites for more exciting updates and information on history of South Asia. Until next time, stay safe, stay curious.